Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here, and the Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We are on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this conversation, we have the privilege to speak with the president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Sam Waldron. So welcome back to the show, Dr. Waldron. It's good to be with you again, Austin, and to talk about the important subject before us today. Yeah, and that important subject is uh, about worship. Uh, More specifically, we'll use the title of your book to title this episode. Uh, It is How Then Shall We Worship? And uh, we're excited to talk about uh, the release and uh, the content of this work that has been uh, just forthcoming. So uh, let's let's just jump right in and uh, ask this first question. Why did you write uh, this newly released book, How Then Should We Worship? Yes, it's, it's the second way, by the way, if, the, if people search the title, is how should we then worship, not how shall we then worship? I think R.C. Sproul has a, a book by the uh, the title, How Then Shall We Worship? So I had to go with should, okay? Uh, why did I write it? Because I was in a context, frankly, a church that I felt was losing its moorings on some of the foundations of Reformed worship. Not all at once, not in, in ways that would be evident to a lot of people, but that was my context. I felt slipping away uh, both the foundation and the reality of the regulative principle of worship. And, uh, and that movement uh, away from those realities was deeply troubling to me. Uh, by the foundation of worship, I mean the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ uh, in its formal meetings has uh, the privilege of the special presence of God. And this is why the scriptures speak of uh, the church being the house of God and the church of the living God when it gathers together in formal worship. And it's because of that great reality of the distinctive presence of God in its worship that the regular principle actually makes sense. You know, many people ask the question, well, why should we behave differently? Why should we have a different principle regulating us in worship than we do in the rest of life? Well, they're right. There is a different principle at stake. But the reason there's a different principle at stake is that the church is holy because of the presence of God in a way that the rest of human life isn't. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, modern Christianity is lost in many respects the whole concept of the holy. Christianity is not a religion, it's just a relationship. Every day is equally holy. Um, and uh, the response of Reformed Christians to that, that kind of uh, mentality ought to be that, well of, well, of course, all of life is to be lived before God, but there's something particularly holy about the church and its life. Of course, every day is holy and should be lived for God. But there is one day that particularly belongs to the Lord and should be lived for God. And so 
those realities, uh, I, I think, are slipping away in modern Christianity and need to be reemphasized and regained by evangelicals. Hmm, that's helpful. Um, in your response that you just gave to the question I asked, you mentioned the regulative principle of worship multiple times. Uh, as this book has come out, uh, I've noticed on social media that uh, several people have been asking if this is uh, if this book is just the exact same as the pamphlet that you uh, wrote uh, years ago. Do you want to talk about how it differs from uh, that pamphlet? Oh, I sure do. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I, I it's certainly true that there's a good deal of overlap, uh, but that pamphlet. Uh, and that's now available from Chapel Library, uh, free of charge. That pamphlet covers only a very small portion or a, a, a fraction of what this book covers. And so, yeah, my view of the regulative principle is restated in this book. And, uh, and insofar as the book does that, it is somewhat, uh, uh, there's a lot of overlap between the book and that pamphlet. But having said that, there's a lot of things that don't overlap that are additions. The, uh, uh, the whole first chapter on the historical assertion of the holiness of the church uh, isn't in that pamphlet. And the whole second part of the book on the required parts of worship, as I walk through the biblical evidence for what things should be a part of the formal corporate worship of the church, uh, a lot of that, none of that is in the principle, uh, in the in the pamphlet you're talking about. And then there are a number of appendices that talk about a number of very practical and specific issues that uh, uh, are not covered in the pamphlet at all. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a pretty uh, extensive amplification and addition to what the pamphlet says. Yeah, that's helpful as well. And uh, not to stay on this question forever, but just another follow-up. Uh, we've mentioned regulative principle uh, multiple times already just at the beginning of this conversation. And I would assume that uh, many of our listeners that are interested in this show already uh, have read the 1689 or are in that type of a church context and know what the regulative principle of worship is. But uh, perhaps some of our listeners don't know what the regulative pr uh, principle of worship is. Could you just uh, give uh, a very concise and uh, brief answer to what the regulative principle of worship is? Certainly can and want to do that, in fact. Uh, you know, the place to begin here is with the confession itself and its statement of the regulative principle in chapter 22 and paragraph 1. Let me just read what it says there. Um, the whole paragraph uh, goes as follows, although only the last part is particularly relevant. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all with all the might. But, and here's the relevant part, here's the regulative principle, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, 
nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, uh, that, th that statement reflects uh, a couple of things that we should probably talk about a little bit. First of all, it reflects um, the uh, stricter view of sola scriptura that the Reformed wing of Protestantism adopted, as opposed to the less strict view of sola scriptura that, say, the Lutherans and the Anglicans held. The Lutherans and the Anglicans basically believed that while you could not violate scripture in your worship or scriptural principles in the way you worship, uh, that there were many traditions, uh, rites, ceremonies not spoken of in the Bible that could be appropriately added to worship to enhance its beauty, order, etc. Uh, the uh, Reformed wing of Protestantism uh, said no. The church and its worship are also subject to sola scriptura. They must be they must be ordered by scripture alone. And so we cannot worship God, as the text of the confession says, according to the imaginations and devices of men. Uh, we have to worship him uh, simply according to his revealed will. And this means, that the elements of worship or the parts of worship have to have clear precedent in the scriptures. And in terms of New Testament worship, they must have clear precedent in the worship uh, that is revealed uh, in the New Covenant and in the New Testament. So that's, that's one of the things that needs to be understood here. And of course, this then led to a, a, a great debate uh, of the stricter Reformed versus both the Lutherans and the Anglicans and led to the de debate between Puritans and Anglicans in England about, about the nature uh, of, of worship and the insistence of the Puritans that we may only worship God according to his revealed will and, not, uh, and we may not introduce into worship uh, as elements of worship the imagination and devices of men. So that's the definition of the regulative principle that uh, we must worship God according to his revealed will, and we may not add to that worship our own good ideas, in quotes, about how God might be worshipped and what might enhance worship. Uh, we cannot add to the parts and elements of worship. Yeah, that's helpful. And as you mentioned, that is a key element uh, in the book. So we want to encourage our listeners to uh, buy the book and read it to learn more about the regulative principle and how it relates to uh, worshiping God on the Lord's Day. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's, uh, let's transition a little bit now to another part of our discussion. I remember uh, seeing this book for pre-order, I think over a year ago. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, I saw that it was supposed to come out in June 2021. So uh, my next question for you is, why has it taken so long for this book to come out? Uh, yeah, actually, Austin, it's much worse than what you said. <laughs> um, and I don't by that mean to uh, pile all the blame on the publisher, uh, but a number of things happened to delay. I actually preached the sermons uh, 
and the early years of Grace Reformed Baptist Church of Owensboro to lay the foundations that were already basically there, but to explain the, the reasons why we worshiped in our corporate worship the way we did. Uh, and so it actually, the, the book actually goes back to 2014. I edited the sermons, put them in a rough draft form. Um, I uh, got some help from, from brothers in uh, a couple of different ways. D. Scott Meadows, a Reformed Baptist pastor in the Northeast, uh, kindly read the entire book and suggested some grammatical and typographical, typographical changes. Um, I, I got the help of Pastor Jeff Smith and of Boca Raton, Florida, in what's written in the book about exclusive psalmody and my rebuttal to exclusive psalmody. Uh, and, and so it was uh, in 2017 that I tried to implement all that input when I was on a brief sabbatical. And, uh, and then I submitted the book for publication uh, well, I got some of the uh, wonderful um, commendations that you'll see on the book, but I submitted the book for publication probably in late 2017 or 2018. Evangelical Press at the time had committed themselves to publish the book. Uh, they'd recently coming, come out with a book that I read as I was uh, editing my own book by Terry Johnson on worshiping with Kelvin. I found some of the things he said in there helpful and actually quote him in a couple of places in the book. And, uh, and so I submitted it to them. They had agreed uh, to publish the book, but then several things happened. Um, there were delays in, in editing parts of the book. Uh, evangelical press I think the right thing to say is that it was sold or it's now a subsidiary of another publishing company called 10 of those. Of course, uh, just about the time we hoped the book might be making it out, uh, the, <laughs> the pandemic, the COVID pandemic hit the world and this uh, delayed things. And in the aftermath of the pandemic, there was uh, the, uh, <laughs> I think it was literally a slow boat from China that had the copies of the book on it that took forever to get unloaded and, and, and into circulation here in the United States. And so this is why it's been so long, um, even longer than you mentioned, for the book to come out um, because of all those different factors. I've been eagerly awaiting it because this subject is near and dear to my heart and really at the foundation of our church's ministry here in Owensboro. Well, the way we worship God corporately and publicly is just foundational for who we are as a church. Well, it may have taken a while to get here, but I've got to hold at least a copy of it and uh, the cover of it. I think they've done, in my own opinion, a good job of binding this book. It does look aesthetically pleasing, but... Mm -hmm. uh, Let's talk about the content of this book and more specifically the content of this book in relation to some of your other writings. Uh, we've previously had you on. If our uh, guests are our listeners, our regular listeners to the show, they know we've done an episode with you about uh, your book, Who Runs the Church? We've done an episode with you about your cascade argument that could be found in um, your book on uh, cessationism. Uh We've done a book with you about uh, political revolution. So you have authored a number of books 
How does this book that's just been released that we're talking about today relate to some of your previous writings? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and one that I'm eager to talk about. Um, and you haven't brought up a modern exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And that book, as well as the other books that you've just mentioned, are really, I, I, I see a vital relationship or connection between those works and this one. Um, and the connection is this, given what we believe about what the, do, the Bible teaches doctrinally, given our, our new Reformed and Baptist understanding of doctrine, given uh, our rejection of the charismania all around the world today, given all of these things, given our doctrine of the church, you brought up who runs the church, given all these things, how should that affect how we worship? Surely, I mean, uh, for us, for many of us, the transition has been from fundamentalist, Baptist, broad evangelical backgrounds, from uh, various forms of contemporary and progressive worship. That's our; Those are our backgrounds. The question is, should what we believe, should all the doctrinal changes and, uh, and new and glorious perspectives which God has taught us, should this affect how we should worship. And, and my answer in this book is it absolutely should. And I'm trying here then to get to some of the specifics of how our worship should be different than it was before when we were not aware of the glorious truths of Reformed and Baptist theology. Yeah, and... Uh... To follow up on that, we can transition to uh, some of the people that we want uh, to read this book. Uh, we'll, we'll start with uh, just pastors generally. Why do you think pastors should take up this book? Why is it important for them to consider the topic of worship? And what do you think this uh, resource has to offer pastors? Well, uh, when we talk about pastors here, I mean evangelical pastors in general. Uh, perhaps evangelical pastors that are beginning to have an inkling of uh, of what reform the reformed faith is, what reformed Baptists believe, um, and I hope it is read by uh, evangelical pastors in that kind of category, uh, because uh, I, I guess I want to put it this way: uh, you know, remember the the. Uh, uh, men in Acts 19, the people I call the weird disciples of John, uh, when Paul asked them about the Holy Spirit, at least some of our uh, English versions say that they did not even know if there was a Holy Spirit. Well, I think a lot of pastors and churches today are in exactly that kind of situation. They do not even know that there is a regulative principle. They do not even know that the church should regulate, not just uh, the government of the church and not just the doctrine of the church, not just the task of the church, but that the, the, the Bible alone, sola scriptura, should regulate the worship of the church. They don't even know that there is a regulative principle. They're still under the impression 
that somehow we have the right to worship God however we please. And, and uh, what I am trying to do in the first part, a whole first part of this book, is to say, no, wait, that's entirely wrong. We do not have a right to worship God in the way that we uh, think best according to our traditions and our imaginations and, our, and all our other good ideas. We have to worship God the way he told us to worship him in the scriptures. And um, one of my hopes is uh, to not only drive home that principle uh, and show the biblical proof for it in passages like uh, Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 10 and Colossians, uh, Colossians 2, where uh, the Bible condemns so severely will worship, worshiping God according to the imaginations and constructions of our own will. Um, and so my hope is not only to, to show them the biblical proof for the regular principle, but to show them why the regular principle must be what it is, why there is this limitation on our freedom in terms of how we worship God. There is this limitation because the church is the special habitation of God and is, a, is holy in a way that the, entirely, the entire rest of human life is not holy. Um, is, is the family the institution, creation of God? Yes. Is the state even the institution of God's common grace? Yes. But they are not the temple of God. They are not the church of the living God, as 1 Timothy 3.15 says. And they are not inhabited by the special presence of Christ uh, that is promised in passages like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. And it is for this reason that the church must conduct its business and regulate its worship and government differently than the rest of, that it than people do in the rest of human life, because the church has this special holiness, this special habitation by God. The place where you stand is holy ground, and of course, uh, even though people can wear sandals every place else. Both Moses and Joshua were told to take those sandals off their feet in a place of this holy ground. My heart is for pastors to read this book and realize perhaps for the first time that the church is holy ground. That's my heart. Amen. Um, for those churches that uh, perhaps have never heard of the regulative principle of worship before and perhaps are uh, worshiping the Lord in ways that he has not taught them, it, it seems as if um, perhaps they're, they're doing so in the replacement of certain elements of worship that are actually prescribed in the Word. Mm -hmm. So my follow-up question to you is, do you see uh, certain elements in our day in broader uh, evangelicalism that are neglected broadly in the Christian church today that uh, you want to emphasize uh, with your book that pastors should uh, return? Yeah, that's that's a good that question. It is part of my heart. Um, I think one of the things that uh, is, of course, front and center in the worship wars is the whole issue of singing and music and congregational singing. Um, my heart in this book is to say, 
look, the commanded element of worship in regard to this whole matter of music and singing, the, com the command, what the Bible clearly commands is congregational singing. That's what the Bible puts its focus on. And I, I'm afraid that in many different respects, in many different respects, that focus is being obscured. Perhaps sometimes it's even by well-intentioned, well-intentioned uh, people uh, that are doing things that they're going to, uh, that they think may be glorifying to God. But the problem is that when you walk into a lot of churches with the elaborate worship bands, uh, with the loud worship music, congregational singing is actually not helped by those things. It is hindered. The reason is that when you walk into that, th those, those worship times, and I've been in churches like that, you're not sure if you're at a concert where you're a spectator or if you're at a worship service where you're a participant. Now, my, my, my heart and my goal is to say, look, if we are not uh, amplifying, magnifying, assisting congregational singing in the way we do music in the church, we're failing fundamentally and at the heart of what we're supposed to be doing. And, uh, you know, a couple of things that I think are clear about that. One is that if the worship band is to stay displayed too prominently, it begins to look like a concert rather than a worship service. And if the, if the worship band plays too loudly uh, and is, is too dominant in terms of just the decibel level, then that also tends to submerge congregational singing and create more of the atmosphere of concert rather than of a worship service. Concerts are fine. All sorts of music is fine um, within the bounds of God's moral law. But there is a particular kind of music that God requires and that he wants that is primary in worship, and that's congregational worship and singing congregational praise. Anything that uh, assists that and lifts it up uh, is wonderful. Anything that depresses it and obscures it is, well, is really bad. So that's one of one of my heart, uh, heart in this. Uh, another thing that you're going to find when you emphasize the regulative principle is the, is the whole place of male leadership in worship. Um, and I think, uh, again, this is an area where there's a lot of backsliding from the plain principles of scripture because of the egalitarian culture in which we live. Uh, worship must be led by men. Men should be leading the, leading the worship and its reading. Men should be leading the, on the reading of scripture Men should be leading worship in the terms of leading the congregational singing. Men should be leading worship in terms of uh, the corporate prayers of God's people. Men should be leading worship uh, in, in the preaching and teaching. It. But it seems like uh, somehow we're getting to the place where even conservative churches believe 
that it's only the pulpit, only preaching and teaching that uh, that is preserved to the male leadership of the church. And I think that's entirely wrong. And I think a, a plain, natural reading of passages like 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 makes it clear that throughout the worship of God's people, there ought to be male leadership. Hmm. Well, we've talked in our discussion now about why uh, you think that pastors uh, generally should read this book, but uh, why should Reformed Baptist pastors read this book, and uh, how might this better help them think about uh, worshiping on the Lord's Day? Yeah. Well, uh, and here I want to speak uh, modestly and humbly, (laughs) but I, I do have some things that I hope our Reformed Baptist pastors will listen to and hear in what I'm saying. And um, uh, I'm assuming that these Reformed and Baptist pastors get the regulative principle. They get that worship should be reverence and God-centered. They get all of that. But I still think that there are some aspects of historically Reformed worship that have not been gotten as clearly as they should. I think, I think one of the things I'm concerned about is an overreaction to the wildfire of charismatic worship. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the way I'm kind of thinking about this is that you have the wildfire of charismatic worship, you know, emotion, singing, loudness, yeah, all sorts of things going on. You have the wildfire of charismatic worship. But then, and sadly, in a lot of uh, non-charismatic and even reformed worship, it seems like, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure how to put this, but it seems like um, that uh, we're overreacting and, and, and uh it seems like the only thing left for the worshiper to do is sit there quietly and simply absorb what's being said. And I think uh, I, what I want is to hit a balance. I, I think between the, the little embering, almost invisible uh, embers of the fire and some fundamentalist and reformed churches that direct, that reject charismania and, and between the wildfire of charismatic worship, there is a, a, there is a happy medium, if I can put it that way. There is, uh, there is, uh, there is a, a, a red hot fire contained in the stove, if I can put it that way. Uh, there's a red hot fire going on contained in the stove of the regulative principle of worship, and um, and I, I and I think. What that comes down to is is the old doctrine and um, principle of worship is that worship should be dialogical. That is to say, it's a dialogue between God and his church. And and this means that uh, if we're dead silent in worship and never respond overtly in any way, uh, there's something wrong with our worship. There's no dialogue going on here. there needs to be a, a dialogue in terms of the response we've already talked about and the response of congregational praise to God. 
there needs to be dialogue, and I deal with this in the book in terms of the saying of the amen. Uh, uh, I'm I'm all by myself in a lot of Reformed places. When the pastor finishes his prayer and says amen, and I say amen, nobody else in the room says anything. I don't get that. We ought to be uh, we ought to be affirming uh, the pastoral prayers. We ought to be affirming the preaching of the word. We ought to be affirming the reading of the word. This is why in our own church, we practice the traditional response after the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord and the congregation responds, thanks be to God. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, there are a lot of ways in which we need to get back to the principle of dialogical worship and, uh, and not overreact to the wildfire of charismatic worship but to have the red-hot worship of Reformed truth and Reformed believers contained in the, in the buck stove of the regulative principle. And, and so that's, that's a major concern that I have uh, about, about worship in our day and about uh, worship in Reformed Baptist churches. Um, now, <laughs> Having stated that big concern, uh, I think that uh, uh, there may be some uh, some places at which I'm going to say things in the book about what I would regard as uh, more secondary issues that I would like uh, my Reformed Baptist brothers, some of them at least, to think more about. I argue for the taking up of an offering uh, in worship as a part of the appointed worship of God. I argue for a benediction. Uh, I argue for uh, things like that because I think that they are historically and properly and biblically uh, a part of worship. And so uh, I, I hope that there may be some issues like that where churches that don't practice um, uh, saying the amen like they should they don't practice uh, the uh, uh, taking of an up of an offering during worship as an act of worship. Uh, that don't practice some of these things. That they'll think uh, more about that. I guess while I'm talking, I should say on the other hand, I have been concerned, uh, and my book will reflect this about um, the tendencies to uh, adopting practices like exclusive, exclusive psalmody and, uh, and non-instrumentalism by some Reformed Baptists. Uh, there are chapters in my book in which I critique uh, the practice of exclusive psalmody and, uh, and, the, and the view of non-instrumentalism. I don't believe that uh, those things follow from the regulative principle, and I definitely don't want the regular principle identified as well, you believe in exclusive psalmody and non-instrumentalism. That is a significant reduction of the real value and importance of the regulative principle. Hmm. Well, this has been uh, helpful to consider some of the concerns that you have and uh, what you hope your book might address. Um, but uh, more generally then, do you have any uh, final hopes that you uh, wish might happen as a result of this book uh, being read by people who will take it up and read it? Oh, well, I, I hope that Reformed Baptist worship will be 
uh, come more biblical, more scriptural, and and frankly more uh, alive than it is in some places. I really want um, uh, to see a, a new injection of scriptural and spiritual life into the worship of Reformed Baptist churches. And I think that that would do a great deal for the cause of God and truth. Um, uh, and so I hope that the pastors who read this book will, uh, in some of the, in some cases, uh, feel really uh, dreadfully rebuked because they've been they've been thinking their whole lives that we can worship God just any way we please. We can put anything in that worship. That seems like a good idea for us. Hope they'll feel uh, scripturally rebuked and uh, reformed uh, in the reading of the book. And I hope, uh, I guess this is the bottom line, Austin. I hope that um, that our worship uh, will come to reflect what we've come to believe in terms of our doctrine. I hope that we will worship uh, in spirit and in truth, and that uh, we'll worship, and what I think that means is worshiping God from our hearts, according to the principles of truth, and in light of the glorious realities of the new covenant. That's what I think John 4.24, uh, I think all of those things are involved in the worship of God in spirit and truth that we have in John 4.24. And there's the connection, isn't it? Uh, there's a connection between whom we think God is and how we should worship him. God is spirit. Uh, all that that means by way of God being life and uh, and uh, reality and energy. Uh, God is spirit. Uh, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Our view of God needs to dictate how we worship him. And if anything is accomplished by my book, I hope it's uh, forging that connection in people's minds and making them seriously, <clears throat> seriously study the scriptures uh, in order to worship God in the way that the regulative principle of scripture requires. Amen. That that seems like a good place to wrap up our conversation uh, on how then should we worship. Uh, again, we do encourage you to pick up this book and uh, may the Lord use it to bless you and the church that you're serving in. Uh, we'll link in the show notes to where you can purchase that on Amazon. We sincerely hope you will take it up and read it. Dr. Waldron, uh, thank you again for coming on the show to talk about your new book and the subject of worship. It's been uh, a joy to speak with you again. I really enjoyed it, Austin. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.